Welcome to Great Points, financial insights for improving your relationship with money. I'm Matt Schroeder, Certified Financial Planner and Director of Financial Planning at Great Point Wealth Advisors, a fee-only registered investment advisory firm with offices in Boston and Danvers, Massachusetts. All right, welcome to another episode of Great Points. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be doing the three questions with Matt, and uh, I'm fortunate to have a guest on, a, a friend of mine from the local community here, Alex Ray. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to uh, to being here. I'm, it's, it's an honor to be on the podcast, and uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Not a problem, yeah. So I thought it's always, like I said, I've been trying to get different demographics, and i um, Love to hear the questions that you have for me. But uh, before we get into uh, the questions portion, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Alex Ray. I'm an insurance agent at Leslie Ray Insurance Agency in North Beverly. Um, it's our family business. Um, I'm a third generation over here. Uh, my grandfather started the business in 1954. Um, so we've been around for, for, for a while now. Um, so we service personal lines, commercial lines, um, and life insurance uh, over here. So it's pretty much a one-stop shop. You can get everything done in one place. Um, so we've built a good reputation around our, um, around our customer service and doing a good job for the client and being more advocates uh, for what we think you need rather than being salesy. So um, I'm really proud of, of the, the job that my grandfather and my father have done um, over the last 60 some odd years. And um, you know, I'm, I'm here to carry on the legacy. I've been here for about four years now. And uh, I love what I do. I love meeting with with clients. Obviously, COVID has has kind of um, you know run its course and 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 hindered that. But um, you know, I'm here. I'm, I love what I do, and looking forward to talking more about it here. Sounds good. Yeah, maybe some of your questions will be about uh, you know how to make it go another sixty years. But uh, no pressure. Exactly. Yep, um, that's no the plan. Pressure. So. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you. You got me on the hot seat. Uh, yes. What uh, what questions are on the top of your mind when it comes to personal planning and between you and whoever's out there. Yeah, so um, I, I do have a couple couple good questions for you. Um, as you know, I'm I'm 29. I haven't hit my 30s yet, um, so I'm I'm young. I'm I'm not married, and you know I'm trying to balance saving my money uh, to purchase my first home while also in, enjoying my 20s um, and seeing the world and traveling before I you know get settled down and get married and have kids. So, what advice would you give someone like me who's who's got those goals in mind but also trying to to balance, you know, having fun and, and traveling and, and seeing different places like that? Uh, that's a good one. Um, so, you know, I guess it depends on how tangible the, I guess, the home purchase goal is. So, yep. um, you know, we've talked about kind of setting goals around home buying in the past. And most people know that if they want to buy a house, they need to have some money for a down payment. So, you know, you might look and say, okay, well, I can, I, if I'm looking to get a first time home buyer program, you can probably get it buy a house with as little as 5% down. You know, yep. some people will tell you, you got to have 20 or 25% down. Um, so if you don't have enough for the 5% down, trying to decide between, you know, taking a world trip, <laughs> or buying a house, you know, there's, that's, <laughs> that's a little easier. It's a tough question. There's just not enough. Right. Well, um, so yep. that's really, well, how likely are you to, you know, get that house soon? Maybe go take the trip and push the house off three yep. or five years. Um, yep. But if, if you if you think about your savings and saying, well, I've got enough for the five percent down payment and the trip, or I can put ten percent down and maybe take a smaller trip or defer the trip, um, yep. you know that that uh, my my general advice would be, you know, right now rates are so cheap, so whatever your monthly payment is right now on the mortgage, even if you're putting five percent or ten percent down. Um, 
is probably going to feel like a, not a lot of money five years from now, because you're mm-hmm. usually your mortgage rate that your mortgage payment stays the same, but hopefully your salary grows so that you're right. making maybe 30% more five years from now, but your mortgage yep. payment's the same. So it might feel tough right now to have that size mortgage, but three, three, five years from now, you're going to be like, oh, that's not that bad. I can manage this pretty easily. So right. I hate to go yep. down the road five years from now and have just, you know, a $30 a month lower mortgage payment, but have missed that trip. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's kind of an interesting concept. You know, you want to, you want to be able to enjoy yourself, as I said, you know, before you get settled down and have kids, but at the same time, you want to uh, play your cards right and, and make smart, smart decisions financially for yourself and for your family. Um, so it's kind of, it can kind of depend on some different factors there, but uh, I think that's a great answer though. Usually, you know, you know, if you're buying a house by yourself, it's just you arguing with yourself. You know, if there's somebody right. else involved in the picture, um, that's also, um, you know, part of it isn't necessarily what's the best mathematical decision. It's, well, I'm, yeah. I'm talking to my significant other. And if you're both on the same page, the decisions are a lot easier to make. It's when one right. wants to buy the house and the other one wants to take the trip that you right. might yeah. common ground. So um, yeah. usually another, another good way to think about it is maybe in like percentages of, so, okay. You know, the trip you're talking about, maybe it's, I don't know, do you have any specific destination in mind that you're thinking of or? You know what? That, so um, we're actually l- looking at, at, uh, at a trip to Italy. Um, and obviously it, it kind of goes both ways. And we're, we're, I'm saving money to purchase my first home. Hopefully that happens soon. And we're also, and this is, you know, a real life question that I'm asking you here. So we're also looking to, um, you know, to take a nice trip to Italy. So we're, I'm trying to balance some, you know, I'm looking at all my finances and I'm trying to balance it. So we would love to go to Italy and see, see Europe a little bit. Um, you know, that's our that's our long our 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 hopeful plan there. Yeah. So a good way so. to like kind of I guess compromise or <laughs> set, you know it's because you can go to Italy and you know spend fifty thousand dollars, or right. you can go to Easily. Italy and you know stay in a hostel and spend three thousand dollars. Now you're yep. you're old enough that you shouldn't be staying in hostels, but you probably <laughs> don't have fifty thousand dollars to spend in you know the four you know the four seasons sort of thing. So Correct. you could yep. say, well, if we've saved. I'm going to use very generic numbers. Let's say you save $20,000 for the down payment on your first home. And you think you say, you might say, well, let's, let's spend 20% of what we saved on a trip or 5% of what we saved on a trip. And then we can replenish that over the next six to 12 months while we look for a house. Um, You know, so you could kind of use that as like barometers of, you know, good ways to have it be more like logical than emotional. Um, Yep. You can also look and say, well, if we're starting to look for a house today, the chances that we get anywhere near an offer or an accepted offer in the next three to six months are probably slim. So if mm-hmm. we're you know, hoping to get an accepted offer 12 months from now, if that's the plan, you say, well, how much could yeah. we realistically save between now and the next 12 months? And yep. then let's, let's take some of that money that we're going to know we can replace in the account in the next 12 months and spend that on our trip so that you know, yep. 12 months from now, we've taken the trip and we still have the same amount ready for our down payment when the time comes. So yep. those are probably a, smart, smart plan. a couple yeah. of different ways to argue it. Yep, absolutely. And that's, that's great advice, obviously, from a, from a professional like you. So um, how, do you, how do you help your clients protect their investments from market risks and other factors like that? Um, that's, I guess, 
pretty good question given what's happened in the first month of this year with the markets. Um, yeah. You know, there's different types of risks that clients are worried about. So clients that are closer to retirement or in retirement are more worried about, you know, inflation or spending power risk or healthcare, you know, cost of, rising cost mm -hmm. of healthcare. Um, so there's a different set of tools that we would use for, for clients. Um, for younger clients like yourselves, um, you know, part of it is, you know, there's market risk. And, um, you know, if you, uh, depending on when you started investing, it's amazing how it kind of changes your perception on risk. So for some people that started investing in the early 2000s, and you, know, you may have heard of the lost decade, and that's basically from, you know, 2000 to 2010, where the S&P 500 basically didn't make any money. Um, yep. So they called it the lost decade. So if you became a first time investor in 2000, your perception is that the markets don't return anything. Versus right. their parents that started investing in the '80s and you know experienced double-digit returns for 20 years, you know, kind of said, "Hey, well, it, it'll come back. It does what it's supposed to do." Um, mm -hmm. So for younger investors, it's really about you know trying to impart some you know knowledge on look, don't don't worry about what happens today. Markets will go up, markets will go down, but if you look at you know a trajectory of the stock market over a 60, 70 year period, they go up. And, you know, yep. if you kind of say, well, this is 10 or 15 year money, you really want to be more stock oriented than cash oriented, because over time, you're going to be rewarded for that risk. Right. Versus right. if it's uh, home buying money, um, your risk is more about your purchasing power. So you need to protect, if you're trying to buy a house in one to three years, you really have to protect your purchasing power, which means not investing in stocks, hoping they're going to, you know, gain 50% in a year but you yeah. know, more cash or more things that are safe or maybe paying down some debt to clean up your balance sheet so that you're more yeah. apt for, for that. Um, so, yep. you know, investing is all, always about two factors. One, it's how much time you have to let that money grow. Mm -hmm. And then two is your, uh, your emotional risk tolerance. So if you say, hey, I've got plenty of time, let's say I've got, you know, you're 29, you want to retire at 60, you've got 31 years until retirement, most advisors would say, yeah, you should be mostly equity because you got time. Yeah. But yep. when, when equities go down 15% in a month and we talk, we talk later and I say, oh, you know, you weathered the storm, right? And you're like, no, I panicked and got out. <laughs> even right. though you knew the right thing yeah. was to leave it in. So even though you had plenty of time <laughs> and the right thing to do is own more equities, if you know you can't weather the storm mentally or emotionally, then that's not the right mix, risk mix for you. So right. yeah. But, yeah. Okay, that, that that was kind of leading to my next question. Um, you know, I, I part of my plan long term is to uh, you know once I'm able to do so, obviously I want to have my own my own primary home. Um, I also would love to have some rental properties around the area, just have some good steady income. Um, do you think it's and this might depend on numerous factors, but you're the expert. I guess you could answer this better than I could. Do you think it's a better investment to? own, you know, multiple rental properties um, and get that easy streamlined income uh, more to invest that same money into the stock market and, and kind of ride the ebbs and flows of the, of the market. Um, so once again, it, I guess it depends is the yeah. right answer. So it, yeah, you, it does. Uh, so what I, once again, we try to help people understand long-term track records. So yep. Anyone who owns a real, so if you have any family members or you know someone who owns rental property and you see them just cash and rental checks, you're like, ah, that's, that, that's such a good deal. Right. You have to ask, well, how long did they own the property for? 
So if they're in year 25 of owning that property, it usually looks pretty good because what you're not mm -hmm. seeing is the three times they had to replace the roof and right. the year they didn't right. get any rent from the tenant because the, there was a recession and no one was paying their rents. And, right. and the cost of insurance and, and all that other stuff, keep upkeeping the so home. You're, you're looking you know? and saying, yeah, they, they, they bought the property for $200,000 25 years ago, and now right. they're collecting $25,000 a month in rent what, or $25,000 a year in rent. What a great deal. Um, mm -hmm. But if you were to, you know, from an investment standpoint, what you do is you look at what they bought it for, how much cash they put into it and, and repairs and maintenance and upkeep. And then you uh, yep. take all the rents they've generated from that. Most rental real estate has some somewhere between an eight to a 15% return on investment over time. The broad US stock market, you know, somewhere between nine to 10 or 11% over time. In any given year, they could, you know, one could be better than the other, but um, they're so long term comparable risks. Your, your, your returns will probably be comparable. Um, yep. But it really depends on uh, the type of investor you are. So real estate tends to kind of hold its value, but it's not as liquid. And, yep. you know, you might get some pay increases with rental increases. You know, you might see the property values change, but essentially re rental real estate is essentially an illiquid asset. You could sell the property, but most people right. that don't because they're worried about capital gains or things like that. Um, whereas okay. the stock market is readily liquid, which can lead to more annual volatility in the price swing. So. Yeah. Um, it also yeah. seems like a little bit more of a, of a headache to have um, if you have, you know, three or four rental properties, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're chasing people down for, for their rent every month, you're, you know, you're making sure that the homes are, are up to date, things like that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different factors, obviously, as you, as you just said. So. There's definitely factors to it. And it's also, um, if you're handy at all, and you could do some of the repairs yourself and you can put exactly. some equity into it, that's great. Um, yep. But if you're going to be working 70 hours a week in the insurance <clears throat> business, and then this is like a side hustle and you want to be traveling, it's like, oh, do I really want that? Right. Extra thing. So like, like anything, yep. um, if you're thinking about rental property, you have to treat it like a business, not like I'm mm -hmm. going to dabble in rental real estate. Like that's yeah. like a business to itself. So to really get yep. the most out of your investment, you almost like to treat it like a second business, not like whereas stocks you can buy and kind of forget about it. You don't have to worry right. about, you know, you're not, you're not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of Apple. So right. you're going to benefit if Apple does well, whether you look at it or not versus rental real estate more of a hands-on investment. Yep, absolutely. Yep. It's a great answer. Yep, I totally agree. So, um, that's that's pretty much those are the the hard-hitting questions that I had for you. Um, do you have anything that you wanted to turn the tables on on me? Anything that you wanted to ask me? I did. Yeah, you know, I know you're yeah. uh, you know, one of the things I get from clients in the insurance side is from time to time is they'll ask me about umbrella policies and you know, I know yep. we all, everyone knows they have car insurance, they have to have homeowners insurance, and there's probably various bells and whistles to each one. But um, umbrella policies, I think I, there tends to be a general misunderstanding about what they are, who they're for. So mm -hmm. um, can you give uh, the listeners a Reader's Digest version about what is an umbrella policy compared to a homeowner's or a, another type of policy? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in your homeowner's policy, in your auto policy, in your rental property insurance policy, you, you always have an underlying limit of liability. So that can be anywhere between 250000 We don't recommend that. 
I always recommend anywhere above 500,000, but let's say you have $500,000 as a underlying limit on your homeowner's policy. An umbrella policy is gonna, gonna cover over and above that limit. So if you purchase a million dollar umbrella policy, that's gonna cover you in excess of a million dollars over and above that limit. So if you can kind of think of it like an umbrella, um, if you have your underlying policies, your home, your auto, your rental property policy, your watercraft policy, you have those liability limits on each one of those. Uh, purchasing a million dollar umbrella policy is going to give you excess of a million dollars for each of those separate exposures. So, so, um, so if I own a yeah. home that's worth $500,000 and I have my homeowner's insurance and then I have this umbrella and the house burns yeah. down, do I get $1.5 million from the insurance company? For, pro for your for your personal property or for your for the building coverage on your home, no, um, it's it's just for liability liability protection only. So that's the one thing that I wanted to make clear. It's not going to cover your your personal property. It's going to cover any medical medical expenses that that uh, you'd be liable for in in, in an accident. Um, if you're a property owner and your tenant slips and falls down the stairs and there's a lawsuit or a judgment against you, that, that would cover um, the, the umbrella policy would kick in over and above your underlying limit. So, so no, it doesn't cover your property damage. It can cover someone else's property damage, um, but it's primarily for any lawsuit or judgment that, um, that you find against, against you. Uh, it's not gonna cover your, your personal property. Your, your underlying homeowner's policy, the dwelling coverage limit in that policy will cover um, the, the protection for your, for your building and for your home. So if I get in a car accident or let's say my son or daughter gets in a car accident and it was their fault yep. um, and we get sued for a million dollars, would an umbrella policy cover something like that? Absolutely. That, that's a primary, uh, a really good example of, of, you know, a claim situation. Um, and, you know, I, I actually wanted to give a couple uh, claim scenarios, a good and bad, obviously as an insurance guy, I have to give, a bad claim example too, but um, we we this was not a client of ours, um, and this goes right along with what you were just saying. Um, we had a couple that, um, or I know of a couple that, for for their retirement, they bought a couple of multifamily dwellings that they were counting on for some some rental in income for their retirement. Um, so one day, the this man was driving down the, I think it was in Beverly, driving down the road, and. Um, obviously every Friday you have those trash trucks that, that are, you know, that stop pretty much in the middle of the road. He went to swerve and avoid the trash truck or the garbage truck and unfortunately injured, um, a couple people in, in another vehicle. So that, um, the medical expenses, you know, really, he, he significantly injured both the, both the people driving the other vehicle and they sued him. Um, unfortunately he did not purchase an umbrella policy. He was sued for, I think for almost a million dollars, he had a hundred thousand dollars in personal liability on his auto policy. So you have, if you, if you think about it, you have that gap, you have a hundred thousand dollars in personal liability on your auto policy, but the, 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 the judgment against you is for 750,000. You're, you're on the hook for a huge, huge amount of money out of your own pocket without that, that umbrella policy that you could have got for, you know, who knows, 250 bucks a year. So they, they um, got to yeah. lean on those other properties or force the sale of those other properties or. Yep, absolutely. And that, and that, that goes along with, I know you're, you know, you work, work really hard to help people with their savings, retirement and building their assets. So this is just a really inexpensive way to, to protect your assets. Again, it can only, it can be a couple hundred bucks a year. Um, it all depends on your exposures. If you have you know, six rental properties, um, a secondary home, and you have four kids driving around, 
it could be, you know, four or 500 bucks, but um, for the most part, a million dollar uh, umbrella policy could cost you anywhere between, you know, 250, 300 bucks a year. So the very inexpensive way to protect your assets. If I owe more people than I own, meaning let's say I've got student loan debt, a mortgage, not with a little bit of equity, but not a lot of equity in the home, no personal assets. Um, so basically if someone sues me, I don't have any money to pay them anyway. So what difference does it make? Uh, is that person a candidate for something like this or would they not matter? Um, I would, I would absolutely say that. And, and it's, it's tough. That's a tough question to answer because, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if, you know, for someone like me, I don't own a home. I don't have multiple rental properties like we were just talking about. But at the same time, you know, I could, I could easily, when I leave work today, I could go, you know, cause an accident and seriously injure someone. And they could, they could certainly come up to come after all the money that I have. And then some, you know, I could be paying off debt for, for years to come. So um, I think everyone, I would recommend that anyone has a personal umbrella policy. Um, but especially those people who do have significant assets um, and their exposures are higher than others. So now occasionally I have a client who, you know, has a business out of their house. So mm-hmm. you mentioned personal, but yeah. if I run a business out of my house, would I need two, two different policies or would one policy help that? See, that, that's a great question. And that's the caveat here. There's, um, so you, you would have to take out a separate policy, a commercial umbrella policy. So this, this policy that I'm talking about, the personal umbrella policy is gonna cover all of your personal exposures. So any, any business related activities, that, that you're doing, um, if you're found in a judgment against your business, this personal umbrella policy would not kick in. Um, it's only going to cover your personal exposure. So your, you know, your day-to-day, you know, your homeowners, your personal auto, anything other than your business, um, it would kick in. You would need a, a commercial umbrella policy, a separate policy to cover, cover that well, business client, exposure. Clients leaving the house, slips and falls. I call them a house guest, not a client, right? Well, you know what? That's that. That's a good way. Uh, you know, you can certainly go into battle with the with the insurance company. And I'm going to stay out of. Yeah, I'm going to refrain yeah. from from those from the, those answers. Someone could put it in writing, but um, correct. Yeah, we stay but, away from insurance fraud here. Exactly. Exactly. We're anti insurance fraud on this podcast, but um, but yeah, I, I will say, like I said, it, it's a really really inexpensive way to protect your assets. A couple hundred bucks a year. The other example that I had here, um, and, and it's a good example. Um, it was a Leslie Ray client. Um, I, it, not a good example, but it ended, it ended, ended good. Um, there was a, we had a, a property owner, um, who was like, like we were talking about, he, you know, he had his stream of rental income, but one of his tenants went out to walk her dog and she accidentally fell down the stairs. And unfortunately she passed away from her injuries. So the judgment came in against our client, the, the property owner for almost a million dollars. And he was obviously extremely thankful that he purchased an umbrella policy because it fully covered him. Um, obviously, that's a tragic, tragic situation. And there were a lot of questions as to whether she was she under the influence, you know, all these different things. But the judgment eventually was was um, filed against him. And he was certainly uh, really, really thankful that he purchased that policy. So, you know, all in all, it's a really inexpensive way to to provide that protection. God forbid anything does happen. Um, you know, usually these things won't happen. But if they do, it's it's a really good way to cover cover your assets. Yeah. And that goes for all types of insurances. You know, you're only, you only find that you really like them when, when you need them. Exactly. Exactly. You never have to use them, but yeah, um, it's always, always seems to be better to have them when you need them than not have them when you need them. Exactly. And and that's, you know, 
stepping aside from the umbrella topic here, it's uh, you know, it, it always it's funny because we we never like to um, like I said before, we we ad, we advise our, our clients. And we always have have conversations with them about having full coverage, and we see um, policies that that clients have elsewhere where they have half the liability coverage that we recommend them having, and then next thing you know, they get into an accident or something happens or there's gaps in their coverages and they come back crying to us for lack of a better term that um you know we, we we they wish that they had gone with us before because you know we had that conversation with them we recommended that 500,000 in personal liability so it's it's better to to spend that extra whether it's a, an, an extra 80 bucks a year 150 bucks a year on that extra coverage but trust me it's worth it when you when you do when you are faced with a situation like that it's it's definitely worth it to have it can I ask you one last very challenging question? Absolutely. Bring it on. So if you're traveling in Italy and you get in a car accident, does your umbrella policy cover you over there or does, are you? It, it would, it would, okay. it would, it would okay. cover you worldwide. There's, um, there, there's some stipulations with that, but yeah, your, your personal umbrella policy would cover you. Um, if you, if you do rent a vehicle out in Italy, um, it covers you worldwide for any any auto exposure that you're that you're driving. Um, there are some gaps in coverages that you might run into with the rental contract, and I don't know about the foreign rental rental companies, but um, I would always recommend purchasing that that extra coverage that they that they recommend. But yes, this this policy would actually cover you for okay. for a judgment that you know would originate overseas like that. Good to so, know. So now, when you're traveling yeah. the world, you have a little bit extra safeguard there, which is nice. So. Exactly. Yeah. So it all comes, it all comes full circle. So maybe I'll, uh, yeah, it's always good to have one, even if you're traveling in Italy. Absolutely. Alex, I'm glad you're able to so. join me on this podcast. Um, yeah. Thanks for having we me. Wrap up any uh, other final questions or comments or thoughts you want to share? I think that's about it. You, you, uh, you covered everything. I, I appreciate your time. Um, you know, if anyone is, is ever, um, is looking for a, a great person to talk about their, to, to advise them on their finances or their, their financial planning or their retirement. Matt's the, Matt's the guy to do it. So any listeners out there, he's, he's the best guy around. I highly recommend him. Um, and uh, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, with comments like that, I, I should have you on every week. So <laughs> thanks again for joining Absolutely. me, Alex. And we'll, uh, we'll Thank see you, you soon. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Matt. Great Points is hosted by Matt Shorter. Great Point Wealth Advisors is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Great Point Wealth Advisors does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through Great Points. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Now, I hope you can apply some of what you heard today to improve your relationship with money. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, on Great Points with Matt Schroeder.